what we can say at EMBO is science is international, you know, and across Europe we've got such fantastic science. When we here at the EMBO podcast found out that both our recently departed director and current European Research Council president, Maria Lepton, and newly inaugurated EMBO director, Fiona Watt, would be in Heidelberg at the same time, we couldn't pass up the opportunity to have a real live, in-person conversation with two directors. In some ways, the two cell biologists have strangely symmetrical trajectories. Fiona moved to EMBO after four years as executive chair of the UK's Medical Research Council, an organization with a yearly budget that hovers around £800 million. The ERC draws on 17% of the Horizon Europe budget, or over €16 billion Euros for the 2021-2027 period. EMBO's yearly budget of roughly €30 million Euros make it almost a boutique organization by comparison. We discuss the goals and challenges of the different institutions, how scientists and policymakers interact, the importance of talking about failure, and much, much more. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. Our conversation, which had been planned several weeks in advance, unfortunately coincided with the invasion of Ukraine, and we began our talk with EMBO's reaction to the humanitarian crisis. Something that may not be broadly known yet, and I think we, we want to spread the word, Fiona, is um, EMBO has launched an initiative to support Ukrainian researchers. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, I'll, I'll give you an answer, but I think Maria has the first part of the answer, because um, so we launched um, a solidarity list where individuals can sign up to offer assistance to Ukrainian scientists. We, we did that really quickly because of an initiative from EMBO in 2017. So I don't know if you must have been part of that initiative. Yes, well, I started it at the time, yes. What was but the initiative? This was when the US shut down and wouldn't let researchers back into the country. You know, they have, of course, they, they're, they're hosts to grad students, postdocs, researchers at all career stages from across the world. They're very welcoming. Um, but then under Trump, they clamped down and didn't let many of those back in. And so you know, people who've gone home to China or to Europe or anywhere in the world uh, couldn't get back to their labs. And so we offered, we did the same thing. We put out a call for colleagues to offer space in labs or in libraries or office space uh, for displaced scientists. We are closing in already on 200 labs that, that are participating in, in the initiative and offering spots. Well, I was just this morning, I, I've been contacted by a young Ukrainian scientist who is interested in opportunities in, in my lab. And the timing is really good. So, you know, I can think immediately of things that we might be able to do to help. And we've got no idea of the scale of the opportunities. But if we can just help a few people, I, th I think it's, it's really, it's good. If you'd like to add your lab or institution to the solidarity list, or if you are a displaced scientist looking for a host lab, you can find out more about the EMBO solidarity list at www.embo.org solidarity with Ukraine. 
During Fiona's tenure as executive chair of the UK Medical Research Council, the MRC responded rapidly to the COVID crisis with targeted funding. In December 2021, Fiona and her colleagues reflected on the lessons learned during the crisis in a piece entitled How COVID-19 Has Changed Medical Research Funding, which you can read at royalsocietypublishing.org. In contrast, disagreements about the pandemic response were part of the reasons given behind the abrupt departure of the newly appointed ERC president, Maru Fehadi, who resigned in April of 2020. We asked Maria about her views of the ERC's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The ERC is for fundamental research, and it's not for top-down programs. There are top-down programs where governments with you know, full justification say, we will put money into solving this problem as fast as possible. And they did that. I mean, the EU did that. They did supply money for COVID. At the same time, the ERC was funding. There were 200 projects being funded at that time of research that that was COVID relevant. And many of those researchers helped. And again, at EMBO, we did a quick survey at the time of our, I think only of our members. Yes, of the EMBO members. And huge feedback. And about a third of them had either switched work from whatever they were doing anyway to look at COVID or supplied help, you know, PCR machines or whatever was needed as as mundane as gloves to hospitals. So that, to me, illustrates the beauty of blue sky funding. Fiona referred earlier to side projects you can do uh, when the need arises it completely justifies the curiosity-driven, no-strings-attached blue sky funding because all of these people were able to switch instantaneously, not because somebody put out a new program, but because they had the freedom to do so. I think there's no better illustration than that. And I, it also matters a bit whether or not it's a technological challenge or a basic science work. Right? You can speed up... Um, the solution to a technological problem much easier. Yes. And, and we saw that with yes. vaccines versus antivirals, yes. for example. The discoveries had been made. Yeah. The necessary discoveries had been made. And people were able to pick and choose from past discoveries those that were necessary to solve this problem. I mean, the RNA vaccine is, is, is a clear case. In fact, Uwe Shaheen was funded by ERC for RNA, you know, RNA vaccines against cancer. And he's, again, he was, he was working on something else and was able to switch immediately. Maria, there's, there's a stock scene in, in American movies where the outgoing president leaves a, a letter in the drawer for the incoming president explaining you know, the world and how to deal with it. Um, if, and I imagine most of that is confidential. But uh, if you were to leave such a letter to your successor, what would it say? the parts that you can share? I think I could share everything. I don't think we have anything to hide. I've, and you know, we didn't do it by letter. We actually did talk to each other. And so I think I would suggest that Fiona talk to the staff as much as possible, which is something I enjoyed because they're so wonderful. And there were a few things that are coming up that need solving. And so I mentioned those, but you would have learned those without the letters. So I would just have said, have fun. Um, Of course, you're not actually just switching roles. It's not a Disney movie. But uh, in one sense, um, Maria is joining an organization that is more of a similar size and scope than the MRC was as compared to EMBO. 
So in, if, you, if you were giving advice uh, as to how to move into this role of managing a much larger budget and a, a much larger scientific uh, community, in that sense, what kind of advice would you give? What I learned is that the real politics associated with government funding of research is important. And I think you can't escape from that. You have to respect it. But it's about trying to think what are the two or three things that might be achievable. And I, I learned early on that you can do a lot with a small amount of money. So, you know, a budget of five million pounds can achieve massive benefit in a one-off call for something. Whereas, you know, maybe 50 million pounds that is invested annually in a large entity, really you can't do anything. You shouldn't do anything rather than just make sure that the quality and the direction hasn't drifted. So I did I did learn that. I learned sort of trying to accept that politics is important, but decide what is important. And also that it's about it's not the it's not the number of it's not the amount of money, it's what you can do with it. Well, um, since uh, since you've mentioned the political aspect for the for the three organizations, it's it's a very important one, not not just for the for the funding, but also to meet the specific needs of the different communities. Um, and and you you've both had a lot of experience in, at this interface between science and policy, and, and science and and politicians and policymakers. What would be one big misconception that working scientists have about how to interact with and how to communicate with policymakers. Let's start with Maria. Well, that it's sufficient to say what one wants. Politicians are elected. We live in a democracy, thank goodness. And they have to listen to everything that comes in. So just because we say, and of course, we know, or we think we know, that our views are what's best for science or for whatever we're doing, Politicians actually have to listen to everyone and they have to balance what they hear. That's what they're elected for. And I think that's one of the big misconceptions that just because we think we know or we do know how things work or should work, that politicians should just follow what we say. I mean, it's obvious that we think that way and we go to them with that knowledge that we've looked into this, we know what's best. So I think that's not realizing as it's a little bit what Fiona said, you know, you've got to realize what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah, I completely agree. So in terms of communicating with politicians and, and policymakers, I do think that scientists sometimes pitch too high or pitch too low. They can deliver an account of science, which is so simplistic that that's just, it's not appropriate for politician, or you can launch straight into something very technical. So truly understanding the right level to communicate is important. And I, this may just be a problem in the UK, but I've been in so many meetings where you clock where the academic has come from, and you can almost count down how many seconds before they tell you how their institution is the best. Mm -hmm. And that, so then you get a reputation of being completely self-serving. It, it tarnishes your evidence. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say, which I think is a British thing, is that we talk a lot about something called the Haldane principle. And if 
government is saying these are our strategic priorities, somebody will say, but what about the Haldane principle? So it, and this is named after Lord Haldane. And some people think that means that just give us the money and we can do whatever we want. I don't think that's right. I think, as Maria says, it's entirely correct that a government should set priorities at a high level. Where the Haldane principle comes into play is that decisions about the way that budget is divided up should be made by experts who are not conflicted. So it would not be appropriate for, you know, a politician can say, we need to have a major push in this area, but the details of who is funded under that, that, that according to the Haldane principle, those decisions should be fair and be made by peers who, who have the expertise to make the decisions. One aspect, I, I think, of, of this real world interaction also, not, it's not just the, um, the aspect of providing uh, appropriate advice or guidance or helping to, to bring in uh, real world data and quality analysis and so forth into the process. But um, as, as you were mentioning, Maria, um, the, the politicians are accountable to different constituencies and it's legitimate that they represent all these different groups. For scientists in the scientific community, there are two different aspects. One is the expert level where, wherein you evaluate things or provide advice or participate in policymaking. But there's also the, the aspect of if you're not a constituency, if you can't, if your general strike is not going to make the public miserable, or if you're not pulling funding from the Midlands and closing factories, um, or if you cannot exert pressure, which so far science, for example, is not is not so good at, and um, scientists, the scientific community, excuse me, has not been great at in the past, and, and it's not a given that it should be. But there's a bit of an issue also in terms of, um, should we be doing that as a community? Should we be organized, not just to provide advice and consultation, but to participate in setting the priorities in, in, in a democratic process? Well, I think we are, you know, and it's, it's people like, us at the head of organizations who have to call on the scientific community to provide input. And, and we do that. You know, we've done it at ISE, the Initiative for Science in Europe, for the last framework program. We collected over 100,000 signatures and went to Brussels with those signatures and said, look, it is important that Europe spends more money on research. And we were listened to. But I think it, it isn't a one way we tell them it's a dialogue. And if we understand politicians better and try and listen to them, they will listen to us. At least that's the experience I've had. If you enter a dialogue and explain rather than, you know, just saying we're the best, as Fiona mentioned, then, then you can get somewhere. And it just, it is, is patient work. That's, the, that's a big difference between politics and research. You know, you research, you do your experiment, you do the controls, you show your peers, you do double check, you check again, you look at it from a different angle. When that's done, it's done. Then it's done. Take off. In, in politics, it's different. You constantly have to re-establish the position through dialogue. And it requires patience. And, you know, maybe next month someone else is in charge of distributing the money or whatever, or, or, or setting the strategic goals. You have to talk to them again, too. So it can be frustrating when you think, well, I've said this before. Hasn't anybody listened? You've got to say it to a new set of people. But they listen. They're interested. I find if you sit down with them and explain, then you get somewhere. Yeah, I completely 
agree with that. And I think one of the things I really enjoyed at MIC was helping inform uh, the government's um, strategy for the life sciences, because I was so intrigued that in a room you would have people from very different sectors. They might be running a big hospital trust. They might be representing a big pharmaceutical company or biotechs or even pension funds looking at, at investments. And actually through, I think what worked there was that Overall, the shared goal was to inform government about priorities. And you realize actually that with that shared goal and very different routes of implementation, you're not actually competing at all. Mm. And it makes a very powerful story. But but I have heard on more than one occasion, you know, somebody more in the political sphere grumbling about the medical or life science community that we always say the same thing we always back one another up so maybe it's not like that in in other parts of, of science but the enjoyment of discovering how different parts of that community what their priorities are what they're worried about and routes to execution has been really rewarding I, I don't know if it's like that in other countries but well, it's yeah. it, it is heartening no, I agree. And of course, the ERC is for fundamental research, for basic discovery research, and not only in the life sciences and physics and engineering, but also in the humanities and social sciences. And so I keep reiterating the need for that. But we do have a good example at, at EU level of a division of labor. So there is now an, a European Innovation Council where they look for applications from people who want to take stuff to market or want to, you know, really get a startup and deliver something from their research. And that's and, and the EIC receives money from Horizon Europe, just as the ERC does. Before it existed in the basic research community, there was huge concern that that money would be taken out of basic research. It wasn't which is good. Maybe the ERC could have had more had the EIC not been funded. But so what? I think our citizens in Europe are entitled for some of, to, to the science that the basic scientists produce being exploited. And there is an institution and it works extremely well. And the interesting thing is that of the 43 grants that were awarded by the Innovation Council, 26 of the applicants were former ERC grant holders. So Two-thirds, so the huge majority of the applications came from basic science. That, if nothing else, you know, if we didn't have the COVID example as justification, that, I think, says a lot. It's important to fund the basic science on which the pharmaceutical industry or, you know, engineering developments then can be built, that that be done first. You know, it's it's not country specific. It's not life science specific. It's it's throughout. I completely agree with that. But I think more work needs to be done because sometimes people doing fundamental research haven't got a clue about how to yes. innovate, and they mm. start thinking about it too late. Yes. The analogy I always used to do is, you know, someone would say, "Well, you know, I've got problem in this." this field. So I would go off into my shed and I would build a lawnmower and come out ready to mow the lawn. And then you discover it's a field of wheat. Mm. And so again, in medical research, involving patients, doctors, nurses, other people involved in healthcare early on. Mm. And I, found, I learned this myself when I was writing um, a cancer grant. It was a 
beautiful piece of prose, great experiments. But talking to a head and neck surgeon who saw patients every day, he said, look, Fiona, by and large, if you catch the cancer early, good result, late, bad result. But what matters is the people who should do well, who do badly Mm -hmm. and vice versa. I would never have thought of that. Yes. And so just that kind of dialogue, it Mm. doesn't need to involve money, but Mm. accepting advice, rejecting it. Yes. But And otherwise you end up, I mean, another example I could give was uh, in COVID, the government uh, had a very famous ventilator challenge. So how can we increase production of ventilators which were needed in intensive care? And some of the ideas were just not safe at all. Doesn't matter in, in the sense that they were not implemented in hospitals, but the the successful people who bid actually knew about patient care in that mm. setting. So I do actually get cross with people who are very successful writing grants. Every grant ends with, and this will offer hope for yes, blah. Yes, and yes. they have no intention of yes. ever doing that. So I think they just shouldn't say it because no, it's difficult. I agree. I, I think many of them would prefer not to, but feel compelled to because it's a section of exactly. the grant where you have to explain the relevancy. Well, not all grants. Not all grants. Yeah. People, nor do you have to write that as a final sentence in your abstract yeah. for a paper that goes to Journal of Cell Biology, let's say. Exactly. You do not have to say that. And yet people feel compelled to say yeah. and I think that is a real problem because I completely because, agree <laughs> uh, and I, I take it out if I see it in anything that I get for reviewing I take it out and also uh, and if people are listening to this they should know that the committees who look at grants get cross if they see that and if you say that as your final sentence of your abstract the rest of your grant will be judged by that whereas if you just say I want to find out the fundamental mechanisms, that's what you looked at. It really doesn't help to be untruthful. So yes. like you say, it's you have no insulting, intention. Actually. Yes. Yes. That's, yes. that's a very interesting aspect or, or piece of advice because there is a mode of complaint online about ERC panels, which is they told me my fly model or my zebrafish model or whatever was not pertinent uh, to human disease. Uh, it gets less and less, but every year there is a steady trickle of, uh, I've seen a couple this year already about flies. But of course, it's as you say, they put it in the, the pathology panel yes, or they yes. put it in something with them. So that's, that's, that's good advice. <laughs> well, I mean, I, Fiona made exactly that point. Yeah. If you want to use a fly model to understand the basic mechanism, then put it in the panel where the basic mechanism is what the panel is supposed to be looking at. If you want to cure a disease, then make sure you talk to people who can tell you that we're not interested in the in the fly model for the disease. And I, I can, I mean, the fly model of disease is a good example because um, in human skin, there are some very fortunately rare but devastating diseases where um, the skin blisters, the genes are known, gene therapies are being trialed. And I have a few years back read a grant which was about looking at the function of a gene in the fly, but as a model for the human disease. No, great work on the fly, but it's not a model for the human disease. As Maria says, it's to understand how, what does this gene interact with? And of course, having done that piece of work, at that point, you could go back and, and have a look. I don't work on flies, but it's not that people don't see the huge power of those models. It's mm. 
selling it in the, yes. ro- in yes. the wrong way. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I work on wound healing and flies and we're finding out very interesting things yeah. about tor signaling, about autophagy, eating up membranes. That, but it's basic stuff. It's wound healing. So we could easily say it's uh, to cure. And, and we, we collaborate with mouse and human yes. people <laughs> on that. But we don't do the disease bit. Yeah. And people have got to be honest. I mean, how can you be a scientist and not be truthful? That's what I don't get. Well, it, you can if you're ignorant. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I want to continue down the line, but first, I, I don't want to lose a, a, something you, you mentioned, Fiona, in, in an earlier question where you said that um, there's a problem truly understanding the proper level at which uh, to pitch scientific communication um, uh, with other communities and, and with policymakers. Um, and there's always been a push um, that uh, that graduate students, postdocs, PIs should learn how to talk to the that science communication should be part of the job. And and this year, earlier this year, there was a very uh, popular editorial in Science from I think Holdenthorpe uh, saying oh, yes. exactly the, not necessarily saying that that's wrong, but saying that actually you need to recognize that science communication uh, done well is is its own profession, and that some people are Carl Sagan. Um, but most people are not going to be, and, and you don't want them to stop their day job of doing research to just focus on becoming a, a better communicator. And, and so I don't think there's an ideal point here. There's always meant to be a tension, but there's been this clear push in, in, in scientific training and education recently on the importance of communication, which is well, well intended. But it's perhaps lost a bit the plot in terms that science communication is also its own thing and that learning, for example, how to pitch things at a certain level to different groups is, is tricky. So whose, whose job should it be to do that? Well, I, I mean, I think at the level of training for a, a scientist, giving everybody an opportunity to learn science communication is important. But it's, not, it's no longer enough to give a talk to some school children, pat yourself on the back and go off. You have to ask the children, did they understand it? Was it a good day out? What, what do they actually get from it? And so it's much more about dialogue. And with, um, with the patient community, it's not just explaining what you do. It's having the patients in the room at the time when funding decisions are, are made. So for me, it's about involving the public and patients in the process and and realizing that the the scientists who are involved are going to learn a lot from it but but the other i, I was just thinking you know, just yesterday i was on a call about a patent that that we filed last year so we've got on the call patent writer who has a background in science and has worked on the patent and we were discussing the new data that we've provided And even there, we had not pitched at the right level. We had to go back and say, just talk it through. And I was, I thought this is just a classic example of where we had assumed that we should talk at this particular level. We haven't got it right. But because it was a dialogue, we could go back and we could use different language to, to get the right outcome. You just have to be really careful all the time. Yes, I think. yes, yes. Not make assumptions. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic. And yes, there is this push that everybody should be better at communication. I, I, I'm actually getting a bit annoyed about this, what hearing people telling us what a scientist should be like. 
you know, there's the same thing. You should do interdisciplinary work. You should work in teams. Who says the good thing about science is, I mean, you know, we're not Olympic gymnasts where there are training programs that will get you there. The good thing about research is that there's huge diversity. And if we say from beginning, this is the mold into which a researcher has to fit, we're losing out. Why not let somebody who likes to think by him or herself, you know, whether it's a mathematician or could even be an experimental scientist, do that. And another who enjoys bringing people together to solve problems, do that. Why should somebody who's shy and finds it hard to finish sentences be forced to go to the, you know, to talk to the citizens of the town or to school children? Let everyone do what they're good at. And so I agree with Fiona, you should receive fame and, you know, you can learn anything. Intelligent person can learn. Offer it to them, but don't force them and let those who are good communicators become good communicators. Those who want to go into industry, let them go into industry. Diversity is important not only when considering the range of aptitudes and careers in the scientific community, but also in research funding itself. In a widely circulated piece in STAT earlier this year, Stuart Buck commented on what he called the Carico problem, a reference to RNA vaccine pioneer Kathleen Carico and her difficulties in securing funding for herself and her research program over many years. Buck wrote, quote, It's unlikely that she was the only person in the world who had an interesting idea in 1985 that could have turned into groundbreaking discovery over the next few decades, end quote. His proposed solution was to, quote, bend over backwards to fund a more diverse range of people and ideas, even deliberately including ideas that are currently perceived as unpopular, unworkable, obscure, and the like, end quote. As Buck concluded, to be sure, the success rate of this approach might be low. Should funders embrace some measure of failure, and how do we do that while maintaining a quality assessment of, of research? Well, I would imagine for pretty much any funding scheme you could name anywhere in the world, there will be a high failure rate. What you need is the confidence that if this, if it, if the funding doesn't work from this source, there are other sources, and I, I, it comes back to this issue of of confidence. The other thing is. We always celebrate our successes, but we don't talk about our failures. And I think when when you're a successful scientist, saying, "Well, you know, I failed. You know, I failed to get this paper into this journal. I failed to get that grant. I failed." You know, you can tell that story, and sometimes I think that makes people feel a bit better because there is a natural tendency to think, "Well." I failed with this, getting this funding, so I am a failure. Um, it, you need to, I guess, have the grit to keep going or the patience to go yes. off and do something else and then have another go a bit later on. I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm sure there's, there are fantastic people and ideas that are not funded yes. beca- because of the system is not perfect. And, you know, I, I don't know, was it Steve Jobs who said, whoever... You can't connect the dots only looking back. You can't mm. predict. And that is a problem. So the Calico case is interesting. And we now know about her because her discovery was used to this great effect and, you know, with, with a wonderful outcome. 
there are probably others who've done similar things and it won't be used. It will be, be forgotten. I don't think it suggests a failure of the system. Of course, she was an interesting and very good scientist and is still, of course she is, and, uh, you know, found herself in this precarious situation. She made the discovery. Could it be that she would have dropped out? Well, yes, but others have dropped out and somebody has to drop out. Somebody has to drop out. We can't, what is the alternative? So I don't quite understand what the complaint is. Risky research is funded. Um, I think people misunderstand, as we discussed earlier, what, how to present a risky idea and pretend that they have to say it's going to help cure cancer or whatever. And not all of it works. I don't actually see where the problem is. Well, let's... let's Except um, maybe not enough funding altogether. But if there's more funding, then they'll... Part, I, 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 I don't no, quite see where the problem is. Well, let's, let's, let's go at it from another direction. There's, a, there's another version of this which involves also, for example, um, the NIH has studied um, diminishing returns as, as, as funds get more and more concentrated into, into big labs that are very successful, not just scientifically, but at getting more funding. And, then you, and it suggests that the benefit maxes out. I can't remember mm-hmm. what the actual value was, yes. but it, it, it just stops. Quite, quite, sm- yeah. quite small size group yeah. sizes, yes. Um, and so, and of course, the dream of, of someone starting out in science as an independent researcher right now is to get a grant like, like the ERC or to get an HHMI grant, to get a large block of money. And of course, the thing with having large blocks of money is that they're an alternative to having many more smaller yes. blocks of money yes. where you could be um, trying out um, different researchers, different ideas. Um, and there are pros and cons uh, to each of these, right? And um, I think that's also part of the, the point in, in this piece yes. was should, should we yes. be aggregating yes. things yes. into yes. ever larger blocks of funding? It's a very good question. Um, these ultra-small grants are a waste of time, I think. They're, they're literally a waste of time. So we did a survey here, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, of group leaders for, I can't remember. Oh, yes, it was in the context of risky science and how they felt they were supported, how the environment for them worked and what prevented them to do that. And that exactly that came out. Too many small grants. So these small grants all have to be written. Then they have to be shared with your colleagues for input as we said, ask others, then they're submitted, then the agency that funds them has to review them. That's done by the same scientists again. And then, you know, two years later, you do the same thing. The two-year grant only keeps you going. So you're constantly writing grants, reading other people's grants, and writing the next round of grants. You can't, you don't have time to think anymore. I believe that grant writing is a really good activity. I've always enjoyed it. I've hated it, you know, sitting in front of that piece of paper, but you get into it, you really enjoy it because you're forced to think very hard about what you're going to do. So I agree they should be large enough for people then to do the work. And I even think the, you know, two and a half million for, for five years for a senior researcher, that's good. You then really have the piece to work on it. Um, but the concentration of funds in a few big labs I don't see why that's productive. You know, it's also bad for the for the pyramid of of career. So I I'm very much in favor of small labs. I've spent all my career in labs in institutions that had that policy. Basel Institute, 
uh, UCSF, Biochem and Biophys, LMB, small labs. It makes for more creativity, more independent thinking. So I, I agree with the idea that it shouldn't all be heaped onto a few individuals, but do make them long and big grants. Yeah, I think long. I, I'm thinking some of the work that we have done that's been successful, we never got a grant for it. We were able to pursue a side avenue that somebody mm. in the lab stumbled upon and then, you know, at some point publish that. And at that point, then you can get a grant for it. But this treadmill of small grants for small numbers of people, you just, you see colleagues just getting utterly trapped in this cycle of writing grants, failing, not even having time to think, why did that grant fail? And then there's this horrible point where you see the publications have dipped. And at this point, this person is is probably out of contention. So it's I completely agree with Maria. You need to invest in somebody for a decent amount of time. And five years with three or four people, I mean, that's kind of perfect. Mm. Should funders enforce open science principles, making that available, uh, open access publication and so forth? Well, I believe that making your data available, whether in a preprint or a publication, is essential because somebody has paid for you to do this. You shouldn't hide it and it can make science stall. I was interested in the announcement that NIH is going to ask for a data management plan. MIC has done that for many, many years. And writing MIC grants, I would, the first time I came across one of these things, I had no idea mm. what was being asked for. But then, actually, it's a very short text. You start thinking about it. You start asking questions about where would be the right repository be. But the trouble is that that's one thing, thinking about it when you write the grant. The other thing is funders enforcing it, which I'm very pessimistic about. But where you can pick up is with an open science policy in terms of publishing, then you can check, oh, is this available? And the rise of preprints and refereed preprints has to be good. And then something which we tend, I feel, to forget about with open science is the importance of archiving. And I, over the years, have been annoyed on more than one occasion because somebody in the lab has come and said, oh, I want to do this experiment or I've done this experiment. And you say, but hold on, we published that result however many years ago. So an archive, a record where you can go and interrogate the data some years later, that, that's what you want as well. So it's a big complex ecosystem and, and also you can correct science better if you're sharing it before it's published mm. so i just cannot see any arguments against open science the trick is in the implementation but, but if it's good for science view, to do it's it. too late if you're having to reformat your data when the paper is accepted because mm. you can't expect the referees to go through your data files. Some of them may do. Mm. And by the time the paper is on the cusp of publication, then you, you might be making adjustments that have not been peer reviewed. So it's about thinking about it at the beginning. Yes, it's, yep, that's learning. That, yes. And it, yeah, yes. just, it, you know, it, it can be very frustrating when somebody shows you very exciting pilot data and you say, yes, but 
you know, how robust is it? What do the stats look like? And they're already in their mind, they're on the next experiment. So they never finish it properly. So we I think we have to train people and help people. Actually, I think the best thing we can do when it comes to compliance with open science mandates is is help. Yes. You know, rather than being the police, we need to be helping you get it right. Mm. And I, probably that sort of intervention, I think it'll be, it's a problem that we can solve quite but quickly. But that's the unfunded mandate. Who helps? You know, who helps? Who helps the PI who's not used to this and has to learn it? So that, that's where you could say, if there has to be somebody to help, that person has to come from somewhere. But surely you shouldn't fund the grant if you have doubts about the ability of the researcher to manage their data in a competent fashion. Yeah, but then there's no problem. If the researchers, that's, that's what I was saying, researchers should be able to do that and they should learn it or have learned it. And then that's that. Now, but, I had a lovely conversation this week with somebody who's just joined the EMBL library uh, and they have this new open science mandate. And, and she was saying, well, you know, it, it, sometimes researchers make a mistake. They apply for the wrong open yes. access license. But but we go in and we explain it and we tell them how to do mm. it right. And I, I, I really love that attitude. Mm. It was like we're partners in this. We're mm. going to get it over the line. Yes. And with any luck, next time around, it'll go better. Yes. Yes, but that's that's exactly what's happening. People don't know the difference between CC by, CC zero, CC this, CC that. They just don't know. They're doing their experiments, but they learn. For early career researchers and for things like postdoc applications, should we still be requiring a first author publication in a peer-reviewed journal? Or will a preprint do or a refereed preprint? We'll start with Maria. Well, as you know, uh, Embo accepts preprints as evidence of productivity for postdoctoral applications, for applications for postdoctoral fellowships for has done for at least five years or so. But it still requires, I think we're, you know, if these refereed preprints, which are a different thing, because then, you know, preprint, anybody could put anything out uh, as a preprint on BioArchive, which actually was a fear initially in the, in the in the early workshops on preprints. This was a fear that people would just put out crap. Actually, people don't. They put out papers they think are good and they're about to submit. But still, they could be wrong. They haven't been refereed. With the referees' reports attached now, which is happening, has been happening for some time, I think we could go there because publication times are getting longer and longer. And, of course, risky projects take even longer to get to fruition. So I think we're doing science a disservice, research in our field a disservice by insisting on first author fully published and accepted papers. It's difficult because it's very difficult in the first place to judge these postdoctoral applications, and I don't have a good solution for that, but that's Fiona's job now. I mean, I, I agree with that. I'm a big fan of preprints. The trouble is, though, if you have very many more applications for a fellowship than you have money available. You'd have to be quite sophisticated to turn down somebody who has two first author publications versus somebody who has two preprints. You you could do it. You'd have to you'd have a good debate about that. But in the end, at, at present, for most work in life science, publishing it is the end point in the process. 
preprint is a staging point. There could be work that you never publish that remains at that preprint stage. That would be fine. But at the moment, I definitely wouldn't advise anyone in my lab now to ditch science publishing in favor of first author preprints. But that's, I mean, the word publishing is strange because you have published, you have made your research public. And if there are the referee's reports and your response attached to it, then it is public, it is published. So then it's between published in this way versus published in a journal. Uh, I don't see that as such a big step anymore. You know, we've moved it's on continu- since it's five a years continuum. ago. It's a continuum, exactly. And I think we've gone very close to, you know, if I look at our last paper, that last step, of course, did it did make the... We responded in great detail with many new experiments to the first round of input from review comments. And the editors at the journal then did handle that. But I think at that stage, with all this additional work in there, and it was rechecked by the referees, which is fine. But in fact, nothing much changed after that, you know, a comma here or labeling of a figure. So it that last step now from all that on uh, bioarchive to it being published in the journal with everything else the journal does, sure, the end product is even better than that. But for judging the output of that postdoc, that was sufficient. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to go back to your point that people were worried about preprints because they thought you would post any old rubbish. I never thought that because because mm. my name is linked exactly. to it. Exactly. So why, yes. why would it be fine publishing any old rubbish in BioArchive rather than in Envoy Journal? Yes. It just doesn't yes. make sense. No, um, I And I suppose what I would like is making sure that the quality of the data is checked in a journal agnostic fashion, mm-hmm. which I, I think review comments is, is really good for that. It's checking, evaluating, considering all the way through. Mm. If you are a Ukrainian researcher searching for a lab that might be able to help you, or if you would like to add your group to the list of labs in Europe and beyond that are offering to host displaced Ukrainian researchers, please go to www.embo.org solidarity with Ukraine. To find out more about European Research Council calls and programs, visit erc.europa.eu. Thank you for listening to the EMBO podcast. Thank you.